0: Welcome to the latest episode of Schnepps Connects. I'm your host, Josh Schnepps. Uh, I certainly love stories of people who have built businesses, and we have a great one for you today. This episode, I will talk with Stratus Morfigan, who is an entrepreneur and restaurateur that has made plenty of big bets in his career and continues to do so today in the midst of a pandemic. So with that, welcome, Stratus. Oh, thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. So you have a great story, um, and I would love for you to share your family's history in the restaurant business and how you got started in the industry.
1: Third-generation restaurateur, almost like a typical Greek uh, cliché family. My grandfather uh, created the first Greek restaurant in New York called Pappas with his three brothers when they emigrated from Greece. My dad owned all the Chelsea House restaurants, Hilltop Diner. You know, it's in my bones Right down to the soul of, uh, you know, my, my being is, you know, restaurants, restaurants, restaurants. The joke in my family is when I was six years old, my dad said to me, hey, uh, your brother, sister, mom, and everybody going to Disney World, I need to stay back. I said, no. He goes, would you rather come to the Fulton Fish Market or go to Disney World? And I said, I'd rather go to the Fulton Fish Market. And that's what kind of kid I was. From six to 17, I didn't have a day off on the weekends until my prom. I was working at the restaurants every weekend, I think for 13 years straight from six to 17. And then my prom came along. I got my first weekend off.
0: <laughs> Listen, I truly respect restaurant tours. There is no sleep, <laughs> literally. Uh, 12 hours, a half days. And, you know, your father owned a, a successful diner that you worked yeah. at. And I have to think that if you can successfully operate a diner, you could probably successfully operate anything because the number of hours, the amount of inventory you probably have to balance with fresh ingredients that that you have to stock, the massive number of recipes that you not only have to create but execute. Share with me in the audience, what did you learn from those early experiences? In
1: 1990, it was very funny. So my, my... You know, I was 22 years old. My dad said, hey, I want you to come and take over the Hilltop Diner. I want to take a back seat. And um, I had just sold an amusement park that I was doing all the food and beverage for him out in Medford, Long Island. And I said, dad, I'm not doing it your way. I said, we're going to do it my way because this is just not, it doesn't, I mean, I love the classic Greek diner, but it has flaws and I want to fix it. And it went down to, you know, I brought in a three-star New York Times chef, Gabriel Moran, and he actually just redid the pasta, the fish the salads, and some of the sauté. But mostly that was his focus because I thought that's where diners were failing. They were trying to do too much and doing it, you know, at a mediocre level. So the sandwiches are great. Breakfast 24 hours is great. But you're absolutely right what you just said. You know, you see these six-page big plastic menus, 300 items on it, and, you know, and and a lot of them are 24 hours, and the margins are so thin. Like, my dad used to laugh, you know, don't make fun of the egg. Uh, it's the only thing for a dollar where I could get three servings, you know, at, at a 5% uh, food cost. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's why diners worked so well in New York. It was, it was such a passion. My mom was at the register. My dad was seating people. My dad was down at the basement counting lemons to make sure that the 50 cases of lemons that just came in had 90 per box. And he used to feel so proud of himself every time he found 85. Because... <laughs> Because, you know, that's their school. You know, every penny counts. And I learned a lot from him. And actually, it was funny. It was, it was on the cover of the Daily News magazine in 1990. Because Hilltop Diner was the only restaurant on Friday, only diner on Friday and Saturday where you needed a reservation. <laughs> so I, the three-star chef really worked for that area. Uh, and we, we stayed true to the classic diner products, the staples. But we really up, we really brought the level up when it came to fish, pasta, salads, and even the wine list, my father was so against me changing the wine list, I had to do it on his day off. <laughs> well, I feel like, you know,
0: looking at your um, background, you must be a, a good persuasive uh, leader. So how'd you, how'd you get a chef like that, of that caliber to come to work for a diner?
1: Well, you know what? I said, let's, you know, who said you can? I, I was telling him, I was like, oh, I just worked at a place called Van Dam, And that's where he got his stars. And I said, Gabriel, let's do something innovative. You know, let's break the mold. You know, mm-hmm. l- l- you know, l- let's do something that no one's ever done before. And that's always been my ethos since a young kid. And it continues today with Brooklyn Dumpling Shop. You know, I just don't like doing the status quo. I always believe that we can improve and I always believe that we can just do better and start thinking about how you can be better. And, you know, a lot of things happened during the uh, you know lockdown of, of from March to June. I made all my businesses better. Because I had a lot of time to sit back and evaluate.
0: I think that's such great advice because uh, it goes across every single industry. I mean, that's like truly spoken as an entrepreneur because you have to always evolve. There's never an end to that. You always have
1: to learn and you always have to improve and adapt. Adapt is very important, especially now. If you don't adapt, you're done. And that's the well, truth. Talk about, though, how you
0: initially evolve. So you obviously were working at diners. You had a portfolio of restaurants. But- you, you really went on to launch Philippe Chow, which was, you know, an exceptional restaurant. So talk to, talk to us about how you were able to do that transition. And and I love the story of how you connected with Mr. Chow.
1: Yeah, it was very funny. So um, I was a customer of Mr. Chow. My wife was a fashion editor at Vogue magazine for about 10 years. So she introduced it to me, you know, and our dinner parties were like, you know, all the Vogue staff. We were treated like gold when we walked in there. And at one time, I went there with a few friends that just visited me from Greece. And I said, I want to show you Chinese New York, New York style because I loved about eight dishes on the menu. And when I walked in, I sat down, I said to the GM, I said, hey, the manager, can I just see the menu so I can show it to my guests? And he said, the next time I ask for a menu, he'll throw me out. And that really <laughs> upset me because hospitality, hospitality is a real true passion of mine. And I said to him, I said, you know, Brian, not for nothing. I said, you just lost me. And, you know, so the, the moral of the story was when I was with Anna Wintour and David Bowie and Mick Jagger and my wife and all that, I was treated like gold. When I was just there with a couple of friends, I was treated like, you know, leftovers. And that was okay. So I gave my business card to the busboy and I said, listen, because I was really angry and I know I could do much better in hospitality. I said, give this to the chef. Make a very long story short. We met the next day at Beyond Diner on 86th Street. We sat down and he said, you know, I'm 25 years at, at Mr. Chow. I worked my way up to being a chef. Why should I leave you? Why should I leave you? And uh, why should I leave Michael Chow and come to you? And I said, capitalism. You know, you put 25 years in. Uh, our businesses, you, you want to progress. You want to be your own entrepreneur. Like every great chef, they aspire to be their own boss. And, and I'm offering that to you. Make a long story shorter. <laughs> I said, uh, you know, I offered him 10% equity, 20% above his salary. And uh, he said, no. And then I remember what Tommy Mottola told me about when he used to sign recording artists. He would send like a, a fancy card to the uh, mo- the mob or father agent. And all of a sudden with the contract rolled in it, here are the keys. Here's the contract. Sign the contract. Here are the keys. So right before he walked out the diner door, I said, wait, Philippe, wait, wait. I got one, one other offer. Let's go down to Rosalind Porsche and I'm going to pick out any one you want. And it's a, it's a signing bonus. He's like, what? I said, yeah, <laughs> pick out any car you want. It's a signing bonus. How about that to show how serious I am? And he shook my hand. He said, you show me a Porsche in a broken English and I'll show you that we're partners. So I went down there. I I called Evan at Parasley Porsche to get all the expensive stuff off. (laughs) We're coming down to get everything off the showroom. And you know what? I I was true to my promise. He picked out a Cayenne brand new. You know what? We had a great relationship until my other two partners were bought out in 2013. Some Wall Street types walked in and they had, every, they had a lot of ill intention mm. of thinking that they could do a better job than what was uh, going on the last eight years. Even though we were the highest grossing restaurant in America per square foot, wow. they thought they could do a better job. And, uh, and what happened was they, they couldn't. And numbers started to tell. And I basically wanted out. My partners were bought out for millions of dollars. And we had a very bitter divorce in 2013. And I moved on from there. Best thing that oh. ever happened to me.
0: Well, it certainly sounds like you're the kind of guy that if you can't get around a wall, you just run right through it. <laughs> I
1: run right through it. Actually, the judge the judge said to me during litigation, Mr. Morfogun, your problem is that you make this look too easy. You know what? When you make it look too easy, you get guys like this mm. that have bad intentions and they're not straight shooters. This is what the judge said. This is what you get. And I said, Your Honor, I'm not going to change my ways. I just want to get out of this relationship. And I did like a Tina Turner. I just want my name and I want the right to sell Chinese food and they can have everything. I'm done. I don't want to be a part of it because I, I can, can redo this like this. I can exactly tell you what like, I did. The,
0: like the media business. It looks uh, easy and glamorous until you
1: actually have to do it yourself. Correct. And, that, and that's why a lot of guys are being shaken out now because they've made investments in restaurants. And they always thought it was glamorous, but it's not. And now it's like, you know, add 10 times to that. It's not a a glass. I love it. That's all I know how to do. But if you're like, you know, just investing, thinking that it's a cool place to show off to friends. Well, those those people are are really getting a tough lesson right now.
0: Well, this segues into into Brooklyn Chop House. So it's actually located in lower Manhattan. So talk about the, the diverse menu there and what brought you to put the Brooklyn name on the restaurant.
1: Well, I mean, my grandparents are from Brooklyn. My partners are from Brooklyn, and we're 30 feet from the Brooklyn Bridge. So it's funny, and I'm always, I'm always thinking about scaling. Something has to scale for me. Mm-hmm. And I was reading an article about the owner of uh, Brooklyn Lager, and he said, I, I forgot his name, but he said if it was called Joe's Lager, it'd be worth one tenth of what it's worth today. Brooklyn has a lot of brand cachet, yes. and the thing that we're under the Brooklyn Bridge. I thought, I, I just love the name. And what I love most about it is that when I asked my Chinese chef, when you think a chop house, what do you think? And he says, chop suey, chop sticks. You know, I, I asked my American partners and they say lamb chop and pork chop. Huh. So the fun idea here was as my wheels were spinning and I don't like to no, who said you can't? That week, I took my wife out to a—I'm not going to mention the name—but a top steakhouse in New York City. You know, my porterhouse was delicious; it was great, 35, 40 day dry aged. But you know, my wife only eats fish and vegetables, and she had a piece of uh, a piece of fish with a piece of parsley and a lemon wedge and a lobster and a towel. You know, that was it with cream of spinach and a baked potato. And I thought that that model became stale because everybody's doing it. I said, wouldn't it be great to create LSD? And I don't know why. I am not. A, I don't do drugs. I don't drink alcohol. <laughs> I, I don't understand how that word came to my head. Lobster, steak, and duck. No one's ever created the ultimate surf and turf. And what I mean by that is you take a salted pepper, two pounds, two pounds of ginger lobster. You take a three pound, 40 day dry aged porterhouse. It's the same product that we're all using all the top tier steakhouses we use it for pat la frida it's 35 40 days dry aged little salt that's it like every other steakhouse and we use the proper ovens and equipment you marry that with a seven pound authentic roasted peking duck that's where we got lsd lobster steak and duck and then to spin it around and bring it all home. I said, you know, chop houses do have sandwiches, but I love the idea of reintroducing sandwiches as a dumpling form. So we started doing the pastrami dumpling, the bacon cheeseburger dumpling, the lamb gyro dumpling, the French onion soup dumpling. I love it. And I said, you know, why can't you? Why can't, you know, dumpling is just another via, it's another miniature sandwich and a bite-sized morsel. And growing up in the Greek diners, like Hilltop, I look at a pastrami sandwich is bigger than my head. And I had no interest in it. But now I eat like pastrami dumplings like m and You know, it's easy to eat. It's very. It's not, it's not you know, intimidating. It's great for children. It's great for trying something new when yep. you put it in a dumpling. That's why Brooklyn uh, Chop House just doubled all revenues. And we had a thriving business all the way up to March. We were 100% over in January and February. Uh, we were breaking all our numbers. We were like top five in the country dollars per square foot I even went to the doctor at that time and, I, and he goes why are you here for I said I don't know my marriage is great my children are healthy my business is skyrocketing and I, and I said to him it's got to be my health because I've never had all of this happening at the same time at such a high level of positivity he goes to me well your health is great so it's like wow something you know it's nothing makes sense and so all my friends laugh because I'm not a paranoid person but it felt good that everything was working at one time and guess what I got, I got my answer in March
0: Yeah, well, listen, the COVID's been devastating on many levels, but obviously the restaurant industry got smashed. But you took that and, you know, I think you really acted as a nice role model to others in the industry serving COVID first responders. So talk to to us about what you and your team did and are doing and and how that all came about.
1: So um, now we're closed out. Uh, we were doing delivery and takeout. Our sales have dropped 95% because, you know, we weren't really a big takeout delivery company. And we all sat around, my, me and my partner, you know, uh, Robert Cummings and Dave Thomas, we sat down and we said, what are we doing here? We're just going to sit back and say, why us? Why us? Or, you know what? I want to look back and tell my grandchildren that the pandemic of 2020, we did this. And they're like, well, what is this? I said, we're going to, you know what, we're already financially struggling. So let's just, you know what, let's just feed all the hospitals. To me, that at least gives us a purpose because it's a horrible thing that we're all experiencing. And let's give this a purpose. So what we did is New York Presbyterian, who support the restaurant, were a block away. I was in there for a non-related issue at the end of February. And it's the first time I heard the word COVID. I saw patients coming in and I and I was there like three in the morning and I was like and I started asking questions, what's going on? Like, oh, we're around the clock now. These patients are starting to come in with this new virus called COVID nineteen. I'm like, really? Heard about it on the radio, and TV, but I, I didn't realize it was this serious. Mm. So with that, I saw how hard the nurses, the janitorial, the maids, the doctors were all working. And and then as soon as this all got shut down, the first thing came to my head, let's start sending them meals. They're not even asking for it. That's just deliver it let's just keep bringing meals 20 30 50 60 100 100 every night 9 10 o'clock 8 o'clock send another one so we did it like two days two three times a day and we were doing about 80 meals a day and it was on our dime and we did it with pleasure and then what happened was they started posting stuff on instagram because i don't believe charities should be exposed so we didn't do anything like that but they started posting stuff on instagram with these like 20 foot thank yous with like Literally 15 people holding each letter and all doctors. And it was unbelievable. It's my favorite picture. I have it in my office. It's unbelievable. They started saying, thank you. Thank you. And they were posting us on Instagram. And then the New York Post got wind of it. And they said, you know, hero of the day, which we're not. The heroes are who we're feeding. And then what happened was I got every vendor calling me from my vendors like Cisco Foods, Jay King's. Pat LaFrieda, Solomon Brothers, Vosswater, Junior's Cheesecake, you name it. They started calling me and saying, hey, can we help? I got hundreds of people calling me for a GoFundMe page, and I don't believe in GoFundMe. I just don't. Mm -hmm. And I I said to the people, I said, listen, I'm not going to accept it. But when the time comes, because I know we're all going to get out of this, you can come support the restaurant when we open. And I didn't really mean that That I was going to take that to heart, because I'll tell you later what happened with that. Set it over like 100 phone calls and like 500 emails. Just support us when we open so we can hire one more staffer back. That's all we ask of you. But with Cisco and all the big companies, they started donating thousands of pounds of chicken, meats, produce. Boss Water delivered 1,000 cases of water. Junior's Cheesecake delivered 1,000 cheesecakes. Forever Young Wine delivered like 500 cases of wine. Four or five coffee delivered like you know gift baskets of coffee. And it was really great. And what happened in a matter of three days, we were up to 15 hospitals doing hundreds of dinners a day. We couldn't deliver anymore. It was so big. So we would ask them to send a car. So between like 5 o'clock and 8.30, there were like six to 10 SUVs outside somewhere. We even Ubered it to them sometimes when they didn't have an SUV. And we packed the hell out of that car or that SUV. And we would send the meals directly to them. And it felt so good. Listen, I mean, we never ate so well and they deserved it. And you got to see they're eating porterhouse and lobster and cheesecake and coffee. And you know what? Drink a bottle of wine. You deserve it. And they were laughing. They had glasses of wine after their shift. You know, it was so great. All of a sudden, I got to tell you, we did it for selfish reasons, too. The morale of my kitchen staff, my GM, my managers, as owners and partners, our morale got lifted by this, where we were pretty much, you know, we were depressed. This wasn't a happy time for any, like almost yeah. all restaurateurs and all retail for that matter. And I got to tell you, it made us feel really good. And we went as far as 15 hospitals, three police departments, because we are very pro-blue. And I've been pro-blue since day one. And we did actually a nursing home on Mother's Day, which really felt good, because what happens to the nursing home is a travesty. That's another conversation. But putting that aside, we served over 8,400 meals for March, April, and May, and early June. And that really felt good. And I got a story now I can tell my great grandkids, hopefully, if I live that long, at least my grandkids, I think that I'll, get, I'll definitely get there.
0: Well, listen, I'm a big believer in karma. You put good things out there and positive things happen, not just by serving them, but other people stepping up to the plate and helping.
1: Yeah, it actually started a fire because everybody, you know, as I'm not going to mention names, but the big guys, right, the public companies that we looked at as our hospitality leaders really failed us. You know, when I have 185 restaurants with a $2 billion market cap, with $100 million of cash on hand, these guys were the first ones to shut down, lay off, and the first ones to put their hands out for PPP and fraudulently make the documents into individual LLCs so they could beat the 500 employee law. And that's what really upset me. And that started like a crusade for me, where I was on you know TV saying, you know what, shame on those public companies. I used to look up to you guys. And you know what? I got guys that used to work for me that have a 40-seat restaurant in Brooklyn or a 30-seat cafeteria or cafe bakery in Florida, and they used to work for me. And now they're entrepreneurs. They mortgage their homes to open their business, and they can't even get hundred grand. But you guys tied up $50 million? Shame on you. I, I and I got to tell you, that, that puts such fire under me. I said, I'm not going to be politically correct. I'm going to basically put them out there and say, you know what? You guys are not our leaders. because, And then, then the government puts the same individuals as our opening committee. That's more bullshit. I don't know if I can curse, but that's more bullshit. And I got to tell you, you know who should be on the opening committees to open, reopen the industry? The mom and pop that have a little 40-seat Brooklyn restaurant. The, the guy who just came from Central America that has a bodega in mm-hmm. Queens. This should be the opening committee. Not a guy that has a $100 million yacht with 1,800 restaurants and not the guy with 185 restaurants that completely betrayed us, shut everything down. If I had 185 restaurants, I would have kept them all open. I would have did a secondary round of funding to my public company and say, listen, we're going to lose $50 million this year. But you know what? We're going to feed 500 hospitals and police departments and we're going to keep our burger joints open to, you know what, be a cafeteria for our first line health response heroes. Well, I think
0: it's you know? critical, critical, critical that everyone supports their local businesses because they are the fiber of New York City. Not just restaurants, but even the local hardware store and, you know, the local retail store. Whatever we can do to help support the mom and pops, I think is is, is so critical.
1: We're all in this together, and you know what? Like I said, the ones that stepped up were like the ones that could afford it the least. And the ones that had hundreds of millions of dollars of market cap and, and cash on hand, they were the first ones to shut down. And how dare them ask for PPP money? Or, you know, That's the part that really, we got to rethink who our true leaders are in the hospitality industry, because it's not them anymore. And you, you know, know what I'm talking about.
0: I, I read the story, which I was really shocked when I first read it. But I also am a big believer that when bad things happen, it's not the end of the world. New York City will rebound. New York City will recover. But just recently, you signed uh, on to open a new 14,000-square-foot restaurant in Greenwich Village. So what is your outlook in terms of being obviously long-term bullish or optimistic for this project? And I would love to hear more about what that restaurant is going to be.
1: Sure. So as uh, I preface this conversation, my grandfather was the first one to bring Greek restaurants to New York called Pappas him and his brothers opened Pappas on 14th Street, West 14th Street from 1910 to 1975. Wow. I always had plans to bring that back, because Pappas has been used so many times around the country. But the original was my grandfather, his brothers, and a gentleman named Chris Pappas. So I wanted to bring it back to the Morfogan family, but I, I didn't plan on doing it for the next few years. You know, part of what's going on here is that, yes, we went down. We made a purpose out of a crisis. But now there's opportunity. I've done about five different Zoom classes for different universities, Mm. and and I really enjoy that. It's like my new favorite thing to do is talking to young students, because I don't believe universities teach entrepreneurship the way they should. They're more focused on calculus, physics, and things that are really not going to get you through the day when you're running a business. And to me, I love it, talking about entrepreneurship. And a couple of the questions I always get is, hey, I'm graduating college at Cornell this year. Uh, I'm graduating Lehigh University. What is the outlook for me? I said, it's unbelievable. The outlook is great. And I'm going to tell you why it's great. We've never seen such opportunities since 1930. And I promise you, God willing, you're never going to see it again. But the next two years is going to be a restructuring of the old guard, restructuring of the old business models. And you know what? We're going to open and be stronger than ever but the opportunities are incredible. I even say that to like, you know, graduates of universities and first-time business owners. I said, if you have a little Italian restaurant on the Upper East Side and you were successful pre-COVID, well, you should be doing your second one right now in financial district or the West Village because the deals out there are unbelievable. The deals out there for someone that either has the hunger, I call it PhD, persistence, hunger, and determination. If you got the PhD, you can be extremely successful because let's face it, great wealth and great equity is is created in a down market. It's not created in an up market. It's created in a down market. And that's, here's the time right now that we got to strike as entrepreneurs or even want to be entrepreneurs or first time, you know, it's the time is now. So what happened is I I got a guy, two young guys, 32 years old. They just bought this building for like $30 million on 105 McDougal Street right off Bleecker and Mineta. And it's 14,000 square feet, which I never knew existed uh, on McDougal Street. Everything there is like 800 square feet. And then you got Mineta Tavern, which is amazing. And he said to me, Hey, would you want to do a Brooklyn Chop House here? Because if you have a track record, and believe me, my, my track record is not, not pristine. I've had 30 restaurants, I've had about six or seven failures. And out, out of half those failures, it was foreclosures of hotels during the 2008 crash. But, you know, a couple of them are on my accord. That's part of my learning. You can't so succeed you're without failure in the major leagues, you
0: make 20 million a year. So yeah. yeah oh,
1: oh yeah. Three, three fifty. But like I said, you can't succeed without failure. And I embraced my failures and I just did better the next time around. So, you know, these guys came to me and said, Hey, I said, I'm not interested in Brooklyn Chop house because it's not, you know, it, it's too close to the other restaurant, but I would consider bringing back my grandfather's restaurant, which is Pappas. And I love the whole concept of, you know, heritage history and you know what? I'm 52 years old. It would be cool to bring it back towards, you know, I always say latter chapter of my career, but I think I'm going to be working till I'm. if I live till 90, I'll be working. I love what I do. I don't even call it work. But make a long story short, I told the landlord I'm not interested, you know, uh, unless it's my terms. So he came, we had dinner at Brooklyn Chop House. He says, you know, here's a piece of paper and a pen. What's the deal that will make this happen? I said, uh, basically $2 million in tenant improvements and free rent. And I need an uh, 8% straight lease. Because you know what, a lot of these restaurants that are closing right now, because they have these big guarantee rents. And what I want to do is I said, listen, you know, 8% of zero is zero. But if I do a million dollars, it's 80000 If I do $10 million, you'll do 800000 in rent. But I know one thing, if this ever happens again, a pandemic, God forbid, God willing, it never does. You know, I'm not going to be the one that's going to lose everything. You know, we're both going to lose and that's what an 8% straight lease does to me. You know, it protects me on my downside. God forbid we ever get back to this place.
0: I said it's kind of two lessons there. One is you don't ask, you don't get. And two is you probably never could have had a situation like that unless it was in a difficult period of time like we're in now. So sit inside 11 leases. <laughs> the,
1: the, the, only one, the only reason why the one on McDougal Street got so much attention is because it was the largest one which is a completely 100% contactless dumpling shop. I'm opening up on St. Mark's Place. Uh, I did a crazy deal at the Oculus at the World Trade Center. That deal was even bigger and better than the 14,000 square foot one because they really wanted the dumpling shop, which is 100% contactless. Yeah, so talk, uh, they wanted like that. Brooklyn
0: uh, dumpling shop. I, I mean, I want to hear about this is like going back to the future. And it It is is a pivot during the times we're in, I assume. So, so tell us about that model and
1: the new restaurant. So because of Brooklyn Chop House, the success of the dumplings probably doubled our gross revenue. And, you know, with that said, I, I went back to my, you know, it's funny how this conversation is evolving. I went back to my Greek diner roots by doing a 24 hour dumpling shop, but I don't want to just do crab, chicken, vegetables, and shrimp. We're doing pastrami, bacon, cheeseburger, lamb gyro, Philly cheesesteak, peanut butter and jelly, uh, French onion soup, uh, turkey club, all in a dumpling format. So what's cool is like we're reimagining the dumpling and we're reimagining the sandwich. I wrote this business plan in 2019, and then I fell in love with the hornet, and this was pre-COVID, which is you know I think my dad's watching from above because and I hate to use these terms, but the timing was very weirdly, really on my side. And I hate to use those words because we all went through such a horrible crisis to even use that, you know, timing is perfect thing. I hate it. It doesn't come natural. But something was strange because I wrote this plan in 19, and we got funded in September of 19. And we, we signed our first, you know, the whole thing is basically I was in love with the and Hatter. And I the Autobot was the greatest, distribu- most cost-effective way to distribute stuff. In 1910, they had five lo- Spanish flu. They went from five locations to 36 locations. So this in is Philadelphia, and New York.
0: Was the delivery system back in the day that was very popular, and it has popularity in Asia as well.
1: Yeah, it's it's huge in Japan now, but in the states, it's really not even not even around. So what we did was, um, I said, uh, let's do. Let's do the automat, because when I really studied about the automat, it was glorified in Hollywood. It was glorified in Hollywood from the 30s to the 60s. But in 1970s is when, the, when technology failed the automat. What I mean by that is, you know, you didn't have dollar bill receivers. You didn't have credit card processing on, on, the, on, the, on the machine, on the vending machine. Let's call it what it is. And with that said, you would have to go and get, you know, two or three dollars of quarters to have lunch or five, six or seven dollars of quarters. And that was, and you had to wait on lunch. And that's not very cost effective and that's not very efficient. And then Wendy's and the McDonald's and Burger King started opening in the 70s and blowing up. That's where people said, hell with this. I'll just go to Burger King or McDonald's or whatever and I'll be out in five minutes. And, and they actually accept a credit card. You know? So that's where the, uh, the technology failed the automat. So I'm thinking, hey, wait a second. Technology is so so incredible now. Uh, we're we're going to go high tech on this. And what we did was we, we basically created a software uh, with Panasonic on the technologies. And the, and, and the technology is basically that the consumer has a relationship uh, with the locker. So it works like this. Take your order from your phone. You get hit back with a barcode once you agree on a time of pickup. And then once you get to the store, you scan your barcode. And the heated locker at 90 degrees or the refrigerated locker at 25 degrees. Uh, when I say 25, remember, it's opening and closing a lot. So it's always hovering around 30 to 40. Those locker doors open automatically. You take your food or your beverages or your ice cream and uh, apple wonton, and you take them and you go. And you have no experience, no human interaction with the restaurant. Your only interaction is with the locker. And then I took a metal detector. which was funny. I took a metal detector, and I turned it into a, a, a giant thermometer. So you walk through the metal detector, which is based at the entrance of, of every one of my restaurants, and it takes your temperature automatically. If you're over if you're over 99.7, um, you you won't be allowed entrance. Wow, I haven't seen So that. a lot of fun. You know, we did a lot of interesting things with technology. Yeah, we have it at we have it at Chop House now, and we are doing uh, doubly shop. We'll all have it. What I don't like about going into a restaurant and you know say, Hey, Mr. Jones, reservation for? four, Can I have your forehead and put a plastic gun to their forehead? It really doesn't sit well with me. So what I wanted to do is just basically it a metal. I converted a metal detector and you walk right through it. And if you're over 99.7, it says no entry.
0: Well, I have to say, Thras, it's, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. And it's it's great to hear um, the work that you're doing first to support these responders and, and really hear how your entrepreneurial spirit has guided you to pivot, survive, and hopefully thrive again post-pandemic. So I really appreciate you being with us.
1: Yeah, thank you. You said it really well. We took something horrible. We did the best we could during that time. We pivoted to being more efficient and and, and give back to the communities, especially our healthcare workers. But after all said and done, like I said to young entrepreneurs, and I even say it to ones that had a business for 50 years and lost it, which is horrible. You know what? You could get up and do it again because this is the time. You had a 50-year track record. Landlords want to talk to you. If you had a business for 20, 30, 10, even five years, if you have a successful business pre-COVID, remember the landlords want to talk to you and they'll make you deals where, you know what? They'll pay for everything to get you back open.
0: Well, Stras, thank you again. I look forward to having a steak with you one day.
1: Oh, LSD. We'll take a trip. (laughs) Thank you. you. Everyone, this
0: is the Schnepps Connects podcast. To listen to our podcast, visit podcasts. Schnepsmedia.com or stream them on all major podcast networks. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Take care.